You once again have stumbled into Full Contact Cannabis, hosted by yours truly, Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Hemp Farmer, and Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media. And today, we're lucky enough to interview an old friend, Randy Ewens. How you doing, Randy? Great, Harold. Thanks for having me, Mark. I appreciate you guys giving me the time. Yeah, I look forward to it. Always great to connect with Harold. It's been a few years. We haven't seen each other face-to-face with all this pandemic stuff, but... That's probably best for you, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed my time in Nashville. Harold was a, a good host when I was down there. I met Randy Ewens back in 2015 when a gentleman by the name of John Baker was trying to sell high CBD genetics to a group up in Canada to grow in Tennessee. And uh, for ego and this and that and the other, it the deal never went down. But um, I got to know Randy in, in the deal. Whatever did happen with those guys and John Baker? Yeah, well, well, John Baker's an interesting cat. He, uh, you know, he was, uh, I believe he's a botanist by trade, but uh, he worked for a company called BioNiche, and that's when I had first met him. Uh, they were doing some interesting stuff with some plant-based uh, medicines, and um, he had this particular strain, which was um, an old hemp strain that had gone feral up here in Canada. Uh, it was used originally for the rope industry back in, you know, probably around the war of 1812 era, it was sort of abandoned and then went feral and he found it had some really high CBD properties. And um, he had gotten a very early license to grow it in open fields here in Canada and was growing it effectively and, and had some pretty good yields from it. You know, you probably hit the nail on the head. He was kind of probably thought he had more than what he really thought he had at the time. The way things were going with the marketplace that um, what he had was very interesting, but not that special. And um, so, yeah, it is what it is. It's just as the market evolves, we find these things out, right? It was just uh, it was the sign of the times, really. The CBD was a learning experience for everyone because I wandered on to some of those same people kind of connected us. They ended up uh, losing a lot of money. Uh, I got kicked out when I told them they were getting ready to lose a lot of money. And they insisted on losing a lot of money. And so they found somebody else to head the company while they lost a lot of money. And then basically found a gentleman by the name of Lee Crabtree. And we kind of bootstrapped this company, Tennessee Homegrown. And our mascot is the tortoise. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk Canada. Also, uh, I think it's infinitely interesting, your background. Were you not a professional hockey player? I was. That's what led me to cannabis. And, you know, I wasn't, I never played in the NHL. I bounced around in minor leagues all over the place. My career wasn't that prolific, but um, I uh, I had a lot of fun and, and I met a lot of people and I spent some time in Europe and, um, uh, you know, it, it was a, a great thing. But a lot of the guys that I played with had post-career concussion problems and that's what led me to cannabis and cbd i to start with i i finished playing hockey i got into business i worked in specialty foods for quite a few years um i had an idea for a large bag that you could fill up with junk and call the 1-800 number and would call and take it away and um, i started that as a bootstrap in my garage and got it national in canada did the dragon's den thing here which is sort of like shark tank in the u.s now uh, with a couple of the same clowns on that show or on the show up here, uh, Herkovic and O'Leary at the time, um, did the biggest deal they'd ever done on that show. 
at that particular time, walked away from it, but managed to get the, the concept out nationally in Canada. And then we were launching in the US. There was a, a company that was kind of, uh, I'll say they copied us. They'll say they didn't, but they were. Um, I, I sold out to waste management in Houston and then uh, went out and uh, bought the other company, which was called Dumpster in a Bag. And then that whole platform became Waste Management's Bagster. So you see that whole thing around the U.S. It's in 47 states now, I believe. And it's a pretty good product for waste management. So I did that. I worked inside Waste Management for a few years. Um, decided after about two and a half years of working for them, I wanted to spend more time back home. I started consulting and I, like I mentioned, I had a lot of friends with concussion issues and um, I was looking at omega-3s. I got involved with a firm. We started creating uh, omega-3s from algae as well as a, a shrimp product uh, using shrimp shells for omega-3s. And we were building that model out and doing more research, started to see the correlation between omega-3s and CBD and, and cannabis and started to see the benefits. And, and at the same time in Canada, obviously, you know, you're looking at around 2013, 2014, the cannabis industry was starting to, to take off here. And for us to raise money in our omega-3 business was really difficult because all the money was flowing towards the cannabis guys. It was sort of a, a, a race to last, I guess, in some ways here in Canada. I started doing more research and I went around and I started to look at various things. And that was one thing we looked at John Baker's, um, his, his intellectual property and his uh, strain. And uh, we were evaluating that along with another, but I visited and met with about 14 licensed producers in Canada. I looked at all of the early stage guys, all the big ones. I met with everybody. I got to know some really great people and I got to know a lot of the big players, um, you know, Bruce Linton and it goes on and on. All those guys I got to meet over the years. And I checked out everyone's platform and I fell in love with a platform that was being run by a guy named Ken Clement. And he was a fellow hockey guy. Um, he had a very unique view of the market. And uh, his approach was that you needed to standardize the cannabis and find ways to consistently produce the same product over and over. And that's where I had decided to hitch my wagon. And um, so now so, was this THC or was this CBD or cross? It was full, full THC CBD. Yeah, it was okay. uh, co-op. Um, Ken had taken some technology that was developed at the University of Guelph, which was my alma mater. And uh, it basically took growth chambers that were being used by NASA to develop um, uh, food for the Mars missions. And it created... The initial thing, Ken would say he had a bigger, broader plan, but I think the initial plan was that he wanted to create the perfect day for the plant every single day in these closed chambers. And he proved it out. And then what came, the progression of that was that he could develop the way that you could grow that plant and replicate it within a pharmaceutical deviance. So to just to step backwards, we were really, and still are, focused on being a pharmaceutical product, a medical product, as opposed to being a recreational product. It was always our intent to try to create pharmaceutical API out of what we're doing. And to do that and to be able to replicate the plant over and over again, it takes a lot of computer generation and a lot of expertise and a lot of good old fashioned farming sense too, to, to be able to create a plant and then to replicate it. And we managed to prove that concept over a number of times yeah so that's that's the basis of what we were doing really in an agritech bio company um the other interesting thing we were able to do was to be able to prove that you could take the various cannabinoids identify what they're working with we uh, one of our partners is a guy named dr Deddy mary in israel 
who uh, is a really fascinating guy. If you ever, if you haven't run across is, him, is he one of Doc Meshulam's boys? Uh, Meshulam's, yeah, yeah. He is, he's related to to Raphael. Um, Raphael, uh, I didn't know because a bunch of the, his old grad students now got doctorates and they're doing a lot of this stuff. Exactly, and and Denny Mary's one of these guys. He started out. At, Denny Mary was actually hired by the Israeli government to prove that cannabis didn't work. The reverse happened. It, it, it just energized him and it proved that it could work. And he, he is arguably the number one cannabis um, researcher for cancer and other ailments uh, in the world. And in our humble opinion, um, he's got a company called Canisol in Israel that is linked to Technion University. And we have a partnership with him as well. Uh, in a company called um, My Plant Bio, which basically takes the plants and you could take any one of your plants, Harold, give it to Deddy, and he would tell you what most likely that strain is going to be good for, for um, as an indication. So it may be good for irritable bowel syndrome or maybe a particular type of cancer or whatever. I believe he has now over 20 different cell lines that he uses to compare the strains against and, and their effectiveness in treating and gives you some guidelines. But, that, that, but that's strictly in a clinical, clinical environment. Study. Absolutely. Yeah. Clinical environment. Yeah. Well, now that you kind of went down this road, you, you know, it is called full contact cannabis. I got to push back on this a little bit. Sure. All this great research and stuff and, and going down this pharmaceutical, but is that's what's best for the plant and the people that use it? I think so. Like, I think, you know, like everything, 80 to 90% of our existing drugs are derived from plants, right? right? So what's happened over the years is that because you wanted, you wanted to be able to replicate the product. So the reason doctors have a hard time prescribing cannabis is because they don't get the same effect. You don't get that standardization. You don't get the metered dose that they want. Yeah, and but, you, but we've all yeah. experienced it where you've taken cannabis, you've, you've, You've taken it a number of times, and then the, the maybe the, the 20th time you take it, it doesn't work the same way. You don't get the same effect. And that's because plant-based medicine has its holes in it. So a lot of people have, have synthesized these plants to create a standardized product. We believe that you can do that with the plant. And I think that's why you know we believe that you can standardize that plant. And there are ways to standardize it, obviously, through extraction and stuff. But we have another company we're partnering with called Psyche and Psyche is a medical device that's found a way and they've proven it through clinical trials that you can actually get 100% of the cannabinoids into your system uh, smoke free through the, the way the, uh, it, you inhale it and it gets it deep into your lungs. And then they've proven through clinical trials that you're able to get like that full meter dose inhalation that you're looking for. The, my whole point is, is that yeah. for 9,000 years, of the man using this drug for medicinal ring, all of a sudden now we get in the first part of the 21st century, and now we have to make it a pharmaceutical compound. Well, I think I think that you know you have you have 30,000 strains minimum in the U.S. right now, right? And you think of all the different strains that you grow, and every time you grow it, Harold, I think that you can change or manipulate what that the actual active ingredients are depending on how much sun, how much rain, whatever. You, you as a master grower are able to manipulate that yourself by changing different parameters so that you end up getting a higher THC level or a higher CBN, CBG. You can 
do that. But if you are able to control that and all the other cannabinoids and terpenes, when they're all in that particular entourage effect and they're able to treat something, it and may treat once, but it may not treat it the second time because maybe something's changed. And I think that entourage effect is so important. Do we know that for a fact? I think it is. This is what Daddy Mary's research. This is what. Well, no, but what I'm saying is, here's a clinician, right? Yep. Sure. Person who originally started out trying to prove it's wrong. He comes from this as a total cl clinical standpoint. My pushback to you is that it's been working. It has been working, but you want it to work consistently, well, right? It, it, but hold it. That's where my pushback is. This drug, if you do an entourage effect, affects yeah. you differently, not because the, the entourage effect changed around that. It could be simply because of the way you were that day, what you ate, what mood you're in. And the thing I think that gets me is, is that we're trying to interject something in here. This is the one thing right now in cannabis, it's bottom up. And you know what? The people at the bottom like this, but why do I need to have some guy in Israel decide to me what a magic formula is that's going to work better? Well, I think, I think that there's open, the market's open. It's a big market and the market's going to grow and mature and there's going to be room in that market for both those people. I, I, I know, I understand where you're going. I understand that whole holistic, broader approach. Well, but you do understand that for a yep. big bunch of people, they don't trust the people for the last 40 years have told them that there was no medicinal value. Now that there's money to be made, show up and now all of a sudden this is a great plan. And I got it. I'm going to trust them. Well, no, that's not true. I, I think that you have to remember with prohibition being the way it's been for the last hundred plus years, you haven't been able to do the research on the plant. And it's a very complex plant, like a number of plants, but it is one of those most complex plants in the world. And, and it has incredible properties that we're just starting to find out. So, it, you know, Raf, if you look at Rafi, Mishulam, the only way he was able to get access to it was he had friends in the police department that would give him yeah, illegal cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And he would go and start researching on it. That's the only way anything but, ever happened. Nobody had access to it to play with it on a, in a legal setting. So now you get a guy with Daddy Mary who's able to take modern analytical devices to identify particular compounds and start to understand what how they relate. I'll give you an example. We grew a plant uh, in 2014, 2015, and we had um, a, it produced a particular. Uh, two particular cannabinoids that everyone knows. And I, I, I can't honestly tell you which one. It could have been CBN, CBG, I don't know. I, I don't know which two that were in it. But we, we produced them, we gave it to Daddy. The next time we did it, we environmentally modified. I wanna be very clear, we're not genetically modifying these plants. We call it environmentally modifying it, where we play with the parameters inside the growing chamber so that we can produce it. So, on a perfect day, like we could grow a Himalayan strain, we could recreate the Himalayas in this mm -hmm. group. So if we change and up the temperature at night and we change the humidity a bit, we could we found that we could actually manipulate and create a higher, maybe a higher terpene level, maybe a higher CBD level. We could we could manipulate it. What came out of one of these playground sessions we call them was that we ended up getting um, a particular cannabinoid that that Daddy had never really seen too much before, or even discovered really before. And when it was used in unison with these two other cannabinoids in us against a particular cell line, 
he was actually treating a particular indication, which was really unique and, and things. So how we, we messed around and played around with it. So now you have to go back and you have to replicate and grow that again in those exact same conditions. And that's where you get to a pharmaceutical product that's interesting. To your point, I understand what you're saying. I also think that there's also, once people start to find ways to try, take this plan and use it for particular ailments, because there's going to be hundreds and thousands of, I'm not saying it's a magic panacea for everything, but you definitely know that it's going to work in certain aspects. And our company, you know, our focus is we've really narrowed down our focus. Like we were kind of like everybody throwing everything against the wall, trying to figure out where we fit in. And you start banging your head against the wall because you've got so much, so much competitors ahead of you, so many issues, so many things to modernization, taking the product to the next level. It was really tough. We've really focused in on three things. One is growing it. So we create a standardized growth model. And then we have this Psyche inhaler that we've partnered with Psyche, which is a fascinating Israeli company. Um, we're the first group to start distributing in Australia with, we have a, a clinic network in Australia that we've developed. And then the third thing, which is probably our, now our primary focus now is wound care. We've um, taken the research of a, of a doctor in, um, in Canada that's been a palliative care doc for over 40 years. He's developed a pretty strong IP portfolio around utilizing cannabis in treating long-term chronic wounds, specifically diabetic ulcers, um, venous leg ulcers, um, telcephalaxis ulcers. So things that are, have been considered untreatable in traditional medicine by utilizing a particular formula that he's developed with cannabis among some terpenes and some other things, he's healing some of the worst of the worst wounds. These are people that have diabetic ulcers that have been around for five, 10 years. And he's take, you know, taking these and healing 80 to 90% of these untreatable wounds. So that's something that's very unique, we think. And um, can I ask you a question yeah, real quick though? People that on their own outside of the system have been finding these results for decades, right? 100%. And have been trying to point that out to traditional medicine. And they were told they were basically, it was all psychosomatic. 100%. Okay. So that's what I'm saying is this disconnect. When did the, the, the switch flip for pharmaceutical companies that all of a sudden now they, they can, oh, these things do all this. And, that, and that's the part I'm trying to find, get, is where were they when we needed them? I think everything is evidence-based, right? And like it goes back to the research. But no, do. no, what I'm saying is they never bothered to, to look at the evidence. Many times traditional medicine, without investigating it, dismissed it right off the get-go. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's the basis of our company. If you look at Ken Clement, who, you know, he's not a science guy. He was a guy who had a, a very sick son in a hospital. I believe it was something to do with these, his, his son's esophagus never really was developed when he was born. And, and the doctors were giving them all kinds of traditional medicines. And one of the nurses sort of slid him a note to find this woman who was going to give him some plant-based medicine. And the kids started to eat and started to survive. And the doctors thought it was the drugs and then they took them off the drugs and realized it wasn't the drugs. So um, Ken was convinced that plant-based medicine was what was needed. And these, these were all herbal medicines. So to your point, yeah, everyone's known these things have worked for the millennium. You know, it's, it's, everyone knows that. 
Now the next part of it is how do you get it into mainstream? Us selling it, you know, through black market, gray market, all those areas is fine and dandy. And that could go on for perpetuity if we wanted it to. But at the end of the day, I think it's important that we get this to mainstream. It's no different than taking, you know, back in the day and what was, you know, you look at what's happened with poppies, you know, poppies were probably fairly benign a thousand years ago. And as it's evolved, now we've got this opiate crisis that's, you know, killing people every day because of a synthesized product that's out in the marketplace. Um, I think that what cannabis has the ability to do is to answer some of these questions and, and to do it properly. I think you have to prove that, that the evidence has to be there and then you have to prove it out in a clinical setting so that the doctors will buy into it. That's just the nature of the beast. The reason I'm chewing on you in this respect, and I, sure. and I apologize, no, is I, that right now, I don't know how much you know about D8. I do not, not know. Go ahead. All right. <laughs> This is a phenomena in evidently not Canada. It's called Delta 8 THC. It's a minor cannabinoid. Okay. Yeah. I understand that. Yes. Okay. A year and a half ago, only thing we knew it was about line eight or nine on a uh, certificate of analysis. It is the hottest growing uh, cannabinoid now in the United States. For sure. Now, the reason why is not because of the people at the top. It's the people at the bottom. D8 is another example where the actual people like making it mainstream, the actual general population is way out ahead of the clinicians. Absolutely. And that's the way it always is, though, Harold. I, no, like, well, though, well, but, uh, that, but that's what I'm saying is that you're doing it for the mainstream. And what I'm saying is that the mainstream very well may be in this one respect out ahead of the clinicians. In a lot of ways, that usually happens in industry. You know, you have early adopters that, that create buzz around products. So anybody, anytime you have a new product, the first few people that adopt it are going to, and they're going to tell all their friends about how they, they adopted it. And that, that happens in the cannabis industry all the time. You, you, you start playing around and, and figuring out what's good for certain things. And, you know, you know, from your own personal experiences of trying different things and see if they work. And then you, you start to narrow down and you find out what actually works. And then you tell someone because you want to, to spread the word that goes like wildfire. And then that all becomes anecdotal. The next step is how do you firm that up with actual evidence-based clinical trials so that we can actually get this out. So it's legal and being able to move it. So through the, the traditional medical pathways, that's the key. There's still going to be tons of open space in that I'll call it the nutraceutical level of, of where we're at with this plant-based medicine. And that's so much opportunity there to do exactly what you're talking about. So how much exploration are you doing in the minor cannabinoids? Uh, the company who's sponsoring this and the company I call is called Tennessee Homegrown. We actually, because dear old Doc Raphael's, his work is open source. His mm -hmm. was actually the paper we get to, to do the research to, to be able to develop D8, which is basically his paper showed how you could make THCs and other cannabinoids out of CBD. Right. And so that's what we did now. And that's the reason why and it opened up a world for us because we were generally, we processed. Once we got in here and started seeing these cannabinoids, the D10, the D8, the THCP, the THCO, are you guys directly... Because I thought it was when you were start talking about this, 
this line between recreation and medical, um, it, that's a fine line, isn't it? And well, how much are you guys going into things like D8 and D10? Well, there's a fine line between recreational and medical because I'd call medical being therapeutic or nutraceutical in some way. So if there's a therapeutic use, there is a very fine line there. What I'm talking about when you start moving into pharmaceutical, if you look at something like what GW Pharma did, where they're able to take, you know, a product and then they turn it, not that I completely agree with the direction they did, but they were the first ones to really create a pharmaceutical product that was federally accepted by the doctors and you're able to run through traditional medical pathways, um, traditional pharma pathways, I should say. And that's ultimately the goal. And each, each country is different. You have in Australia, where we have a lot of our clinics, the TGA approvals that are able to run through that medical cannabis pathway allow us to do some of those things that we can't do in Canada or the U.S. right now, um, which makes it quite interesting for us. But, you know, I think to your point that, yeah, until you get to a pharma pathway and do all that research to get it into there, I think there's going to be a really gray area between what is actually considered you know, recreational and, and then the therapeutic medical side of what we're doing. And in the U S just because of the way you guys are set up, you know, it way better than I, but until you guys are federally legal, <laughs> it, it's going to be a nightmare, right. To deal with the way. Things yeah. There's one person I dealt with said, it's like dealing with a bunch of little small countries because they yeah. all have their own different rules. Well, it's, it's capitalism run amok. And, you know, what's happened in Canada is, you know, it's it's been a, it's a mess as well. And then we started out with uh, making it federally legal. We had a strong history on the West Coast of black market um, dispensaries operating, which were really, in a lot of cases, very knowledgeable, well-run dispensaries, you know, and as we became legal, it was sort of like turn a blind eye. But the spinoff of it was that every ma pa start opening up illegal dispensaries that don't know what the hell they're doing, or you have the influence of the black market and organized crime getting involved on that side of it, which, you know, really grade that area. Um, we have native reserves here that have just uh, unbelievable amounts of, of cannabis operations that are gray market as well. Some legit, some not legit. So it becomes a matter of quality control and, and who's, who's actually monitoring what's coming out of it. Cause not everybody's going to be a good operator in the gray market. Like some of them, there are guys who really know what they're doing and are really um, have strong ethical backgrounds and some that don't. And that's, you know, for us to grow the whole industry to become mainstream and we get this plant to be able to help people. I come back to the wound thing I'm talking about. I look at what this doctor's been able to do and he was unable to run this plant be able to use this in a traditional medical setting because it's not allowed. It's not FDA approved. So what he was able to do is these people that were at a last resort, they're going to have their legs chopped off. He's got people coming to him who are, who are asking to be euthanized because of these for unforgiving wounds on their legs. And he's able to take them and treat them. And he was treating them on his own dime. He was paying for this out of his own pocket, well into a million dollars worth of to, to get the proof out there so that he can start saying, look, this actually works. This plant works for this. Let me use it in a hospital setting. That's what this whole motivation for. So for us to be able to help masses of people, um, we need to get it into that clinical setting and get it into an evidence-based pharmaceutical clinical trial so that we can say this actually works, people. Here's the paperwork. 
and then the academia will, will follow suit. And you're a hundred percent right, Harold. It's been in the, you know, there's people like you that have been waving the flag for many years and uh, people ignored it for such a long period of time. It's just the evolution of the, of the business. You mentioned Australia. Are, am I fast forwarding a bunch of years where you did things, but right now you're doing things in Australia and also in Europe? Yeah. So we were, Ken Clement, who is the founder of our company was, he was the third licensed producer in Canada. He, uh, started a company called Abcan Medicinals. Ken, like I mentioned, had a very specific view. He wanted to go down a medical pharmaceutical pathway, which really res didn't resonate very well with the venture capitalists that were tied to the company. And um, as we were approaching the recreational market, everyone was basically counting their chickens based on the size of your canopy and all this other BS that was that they were relying on. His, his goals didn't jive very well with the venture capital goals, and he got squeezed out of his own company. And... <laughs> Um, he, you know, I stayed in the company for a little while, uh, and then he convinced me to come out and sort of help him found plants, research medicine, which is the name of our company now PRM. He, you know, I probably would have taken my shares and went and sat on a beach somewhere. He took his money and put it where his mouth is and went out and started. He wanted to continue his vision with all the, the black market issues in Canada. We decided that he wanted to focus elsewhere. So the other part of it was a company called Martin Bauer Group, which is um, a large plant-based uh, company, family-run, been in you know four or five generations in Germany, started out with chamomile, among other things, a uh, very large producer of herbal teas, um, believed in Ken's vision and believed in what we were doing on the, on the standardized growth for not just cannabis. We were using cannabis as, a, as the first plant. We're, we view this across the broad spectrum of plants and um, they believed in our vision and invested in us so they own about 25 percent of our company now which uh, ties us to basically every uh, major food and drug company in the world through them as they're a b2b supplier to a lot of these companies um, we started to focus because of the the way the the setup in australia is we thought that it was a great place to do a lot of our beta testing for our our business model so we we had a, a very different uh, way to handle clinics. We're doing um, a patient, not only a patient advocacy, but a real educational platform for doctors because just what we've all been talking about on just in this, this call here is getting doctors to understand how the plant works and that it isn't you know, the evil thing that we were taught it was as growing up as kids. Um, that it could be a really beneficial tool to heal people. That's what we're doing. And that platform is resonating in Australia and we're growing very quickly and our patient base is growing very quickly. And, you know, you dovetail in our Psyche inhaler that we're launching there in October and you dovetail in our wound care. We think we have a tiger by the tail that we can replicate hopefully in Europe and then eventually in uh, back in North America in a very short period of time when the regulatory pathways open up in the US, of course. You mentioned one of your chief competitor, which is GW. I wouldn't uh, call them a competitor, but they're definitely- Well, they uh, got, let's put it this way. I can say this, they're the 900 pound gorilla in the room. For sure. They got yeah. there first. They have spent a boatload of money uh, lobbying state governments. And I know this for a fact, both in Tennessee and Kentucky. It's one of those things that they've come in and they have really, and actually tried to come in and write letters, I mean, laws, to basically give them a monopoly. Right. 
is this something that you have to deal with or you're right now taking the high road and trying to get the, the best product and then worrying about marketing later? I would say I the latter. Like, I think we are trying to find the best product, find the best pathway, find the right treatment and, and find our own niche. The wound care is something, it's a massive problem, you know, and it has some of the highest mortality rates uh, of any ailment out there. It's worse than cancer. It's worse than so many things. The rise of the amount of diabetic um, issues in North America alone, often it ends up being the wounds that actually take these people down. And um, it's a horrific way to pass away. It's a horrific way to live. So we think that this is something we want to focus on. It's a little bit of an orphan pathway. That's what we're pursuing. Serving the underserved. Exactly. You're it's not sexy. It's definitely well, not. Well, sexy. but you know, the thing about cannabis, once you actually drill down and make a living at cannabis, it's not really sexy. <laughs> no, no. Um, it, you know, I think at the beginning of it, the, the, the gold race that everybody had to, uh, you know, everyone thought there was just going to be so much, uh, opportunity is just come crashing down when the reality comes on when you find out how difficult it is to compete in the market the way it is um, how difficult it is to grow the plant properly how there's so many aspects to the it's a very complex and it's and the cream starts to rise you get the best to understand what how to make the market work and you have people with innovative ideas of how to take the market to the next level and all those things are starting to happen it's definitely happened in canada um you know you're 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 seeing some of the stronger companies survive the ones that were smart enough to take in a lot of money early that are able to ride the storm um <laughs> you've got guys who have some innovation that um are, are creating currents in them and being disruptors in the marketplace what do you think the biggest difference between canada and australia market-wise uh, well, I think the, the Australians have really, not that they've locked down the black market, but they've dealt with the black market fairly early. Uh, I think that um, they've been uh, taking a slower approach to it. Um, they've looked at the uh, failures in the Canadian marketplace. Um, they've looked at the successes of the Canadian marketplace. Um, I'd say that Australia is probably where we were in Canada five years ago right now. And um, there's still a lot of growth there. There's still a lot of learning that has to happen. Um, obviously, a lot of education to the doctors as well. There isn't the large growers growing these ridiculous canopies and, and not really. I think the market just grew so fast here. Um, and now we're, you know, over-serviced and, and it's just a lot of companies struggling. I think um, all, all of North America is like that. And, you know, I one of the things that, the Canadian government screwed up on too was they they didn't roll out the licenses fast enough at the beginning which allowed the black market to get a, a real good head start the gray market um, as that started to even up now they've got so many licenses coming out now they're falling all over each other competing so um, it's really created a, a, a problem for the actual growers um, you know I think that most of the large companies, when you talk to them, Cureleaf or some of these other guys in the U.S., at some point, they don't even want to grow anymore. They're going to completely get out of it and, and just become marketers, really, I think, is, is what I get the feeling from those guys. And I'm, you talk to more of them in the U.S. than I do, but I think that's where a lot of those companies are going. You're just going to end up having guys farming and selling their commodities to them. How did 
supposedly smart money misread the market as bad as they did. Because, I mean, once the numbers started, there were numbers coming in in, you know, 18 months, what, a couple years ago, and people still just kept rolling forward with their plans. They did it down here, and it was just like, it was amazing. Why do yeah. you think this happened? Uh, you know, naivete, there's a million reasons. Um, everyone thinks that they have it figured out. I, I, I honestly just think that it was... Uh, there's some denial there that money's people are willing to invest. And you you have, this goes back to uh, not just the cannabis market, it goes back to the, the dot-com era, everything where you have guys, venture capital guys in some ways aren't motivated to see the business succeed. They're motivated to get the next deal done, to get their fees and get a piece of it. You know, conflicting agendas going forward. It's not really the best thing for that market. It's just the way that God bless America, God bless democracy. That's the way things are meant to happen in the free free market. You know, things are, people are going to invest and there's going to be a lot of winners and a lot of losers. So unfortunately, that's what happens. To get to your to the next level where you have innovation, you need that first, you know, bunch of errors and people stubbing their toes to get to the, where we need it to be, where the market rationalized, become real. And then you start to create innovation because people start to realize that you can't just make money growing. You've got to find some innovative ways to either market or innovative products or an innovative way to, to, to approach the marketplace to make money. And that's just how things evolve. And that's where we're headed, I think. I, I got to tell you about a conversation and let you comment on the other end. Yesterday, I had a phone call from a gentleman from Eastern Kentucky. Wanted to know if I wouldn't buy 3,000 pounds of what they call biomass. So it yep. was real good. And I said... No, I really don't. I said, I've got a couple hundred pounds. Tennessee Homegrown's got a couple hundred pounds from last year. And he, you know, and he was like, this is really, really tough. And I said, so I said, what are you doing uh, this year? I said, oh, I'm growing a few thousand plants. And I said, you're sitting on thousands of pounds of biomass and yeah. you're going to go out and you're going to go out to shoot again. Is that happening in Canada as well? People grow, trying yeah. to grow their way out of it? I, I, I think so. And, you know, like it's, yeah. There's stuff going on like that all the time. And I think there's some innovative, there's innovation that comes out of that. You know, you, you turn that biomass into oil, you know, the shelf life of that. There's companies that are finding ways to extend the shelf life so you can start to stockpile and uh, create commoditization of, of the product um, so that you can control it as, a, as an API uh, in food. So once things open up a little bit broader and specifically CBD and having that ability that you could have it in a, a powdered state that's shelf stable for three to four years, then I don't understand that uh, someone doing exactly what you're talking about. It doesn't make any sense to me. You know, you've got a product that has a has a shelf life and you've got some left over from the year before. It, it goes against all, all the rules of economics, but, you know, there are people out there doing it, I guess. When did you consider yourself finally a, a cannabis professional? <laughs> I'm not a professional. I'm I am, no, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm a neophyte in all this. I am learning uh, every day. I, I truly all am. Right. So how long have you been doing this as hard and as you're doing it now? Uh, since 20, I'd say 2015, 2016, I started dipping my foot. Oh, and, and yet you're not a cannabis professional yet? What? God, no. A highly skilled <laughs> cannabis amateur? I am. I, <laughs> I am a highly skilled neophyte. I, I, I. I think that I, I look to guys like you that have been in around this for a long time 
Yeah, um, but Jarbo Jarbo claimed he was a professional about four months in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the thing about it though is but, I, you know, I I I think I thank you for trying to exalt me, but we all came into this at the same time and we're still learning this. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, yeah. when you look at an industry, we've only had legal cannabis in North America or United States since 2012. And I, I truly, you know, I've, I've been very, very fortunate in that, um, you know, Ken Clement, who I've mentioned a few times and, and our team, the core of us that started out at Abcan, Ken was able to become very good friends with uh, Raphael Mashulam, um, you know, been to his house for dinner. They know, you know, we've, we had Rafi up to our offices here in Canada and he Name was- dropper. No, I know, I, I know. <laughs> I'm getting to a funny story because we actually felt like we finally got Rafi. We, we brought him up to do a, a, a speech and we got him to our offices and, and he traveled and Rafi's not a young man. And, and we got him to our offices and, and we, he ended up due to dehydration. He passed out at our, at our offices. And like, Oh my God, we just killed Rafi. Um, <laughs> brought him to our thing through, you know, through Ken, we've got to know him led us to Dr. Daddy Mary among others. And, like these are guys that you know passionately exploring the plan in every aspect of it, and you know sitting in and listening to them talk for you know a few minutes for me is as soon as I listen to them I go I know nothing like I I I I know an iota of what they know and I I just sponge it up as much as I can. There's a guy in Perry Davidson who's the CEO of Psyche Medical who was originally one of the, the founders of Kualam in Israel, another guy, I could listen to him like he's, for me, he's the Steve Jobs of cannabis. That guy is brilliant. Those are guys that I consider leaders and key opinion leaders. I'm just a guy running around trying to figure it out and learn right now. Um, so I don't have all the answers. Um, I have a bachelor of commerce degree. I don't have a science degree. I went to an agricultural college, which allowed me to take a few courses in uh, science and, 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 um, biology and, and horticulture that make, lets me get by, but I don't have the science background that these guys do to truly understand and where to take the plan to the next level. I learn and then I figure out how to market it and, and take the, and make some the right business decisions based on good business acumen to get you to where you need to go. That's all it is. And at the end of the day, it's good old fashioned horse sense, really. One more question and you have to come back. This has been awesome. Economy of scale. And both in the United States and Canada, there is this thing to get really, 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 really large because, you know, you, you get a better margin and the whole all the way across. Is cannabis something that can be done that way? You know, that's a really great question. Like you think of, OK, so in Canada, all the all the companies, when they first started out, they went out and got their own super black market grower. Right. And all these guys made unbelievable pot. They were selling the best pot up and down the street back in the day. And now suddenly they're going to bring them into a setting. It's a corporate setting and they're going to grow in the real world. And they set them up in a million square foot greenhouse and they completely F it up. I've seen pictures of where guys had Pythia kill a million square foot greenhouse overnight yeah. um, because they don't understand how to scale it. They were growing in their garage or growing in their closet and to scale something that's why these little companies like in canada there was broken coast and a few of these guys grew really high-end 
crafted cannabis and people loved it because it had great flavors and all the terpenes, yada, yada, but they're small batch. And that's why they were so great when they started growing in larger and with all kinds of pesticides and it all became vanilla. And that's why the growth of the black market in Canada has been so strong is because the cannabis is better. So the people that want the flower getting are getting that all those things they want, they don't get it from the LPs, unfortunately, because of the way they're trying to grow it. So that's what's so crappy about it. You know, I think at the end of the day, if you're just growing for oils and even then you have a problem, like it always comes back to for Ken told me this at the very early days. And I agree with him. If when you started making, you know, Jack Daniels, you wanted to get Jack Daniels every time you went and took a drink of it. You didn't want to take Jack Daniels. The next time you have it, it tastes like Jim Beam. That doesn't happen in the cannabis world too often, right? To be able to have a standardized product that you get every time you get it, you know it's the same every single time. I think there's guys out there that can tell the difference that someone's done something different or messed it up. And you can't do that in, in large batches. It's just impossible. If every time you open the door in the corner of the greenhouse, you change the parameters from the last time you grew it, unless you open that door at the same time every day. And you so what you tell me in a million square feet, you can have microclimates? Oh, there's Mike, you think like so like you have microclimates happen in a small 50,000 square foot grow up like it happens everywhere so what we believe in and what we're trying to do is that you can grow these standardized batches and still make it and for us once you're able to find cannabinoids and you're able to replicate it at a pharmaceutical scale, all that extra cost starts to warrant itself because you're starting to do that at a scale. And even then, we were starting to prove that our yields were as good as some of these, you know, grows that were happening. And as, as the science grows, it's going to get better. You know it as well as I do. It's just the, the larger the canopy, I just think it becomes more problematic. And you're going to see the growing, outdoor growing is going to expand and I just don't know how you're going to be able to grow it. You're going to end up having craft growers growing for specific things. And you're going to have large seal growers growing for other specific things. And you're going to get Monsanto and these clowns starting to, to F the market up as well by growing in large scale. It's already happened. It's just the nature of the beast. But I think there's always going to be room for artisan growers for that recreational market. There's just going to be that need for that. You know, as the market evolves, like I think... California is probably already there. There's certain markets that really understand the plant and you're already there where they know that there's certain plants that would be considered the champagne or the Bordeaux and all these different varietals that people are looking for that are being grown to a, a very high level. At some point, I should get someone on here who knows more than more than I from our company. Like I'd love to hook you up with Ken. You could talk all day with him you know, about some of the things that he's done. And and even Deddy Mary is a guy you should try to get a hold of for this, for your podcast, because the market's so broad and the direction that we're taking ourselves is, is very divergent from other ones, but you nailed it. You can't grow a craft product or a quality product in a, a million square foot greenhouse. It's not going to happen. Although it's nice to, for you to offer these other guys, I don't think you know how great of a guest you've been. This has been <laughs> awesome. It really has. Yeah, it's really, really incredible information. And I don't know, you were talking about not being scientific. There was definitely plenty of science information in here for all of us. Well, thanks. I, I do my best with what, uh, what I've learned. But like I said, there's, 
there's a lot of bright people out there in this market that have we've attracted some of the brightest and best and um, mixing it with some of the experience and knowledgeable uh, create a perfect storm. And that's what we're trying to do inside our company. All right. This is the part where if you have a, a, a record album, a movie, podcast, uh, outerwear that you want to plug or your company, please do so. We just finished uh, our company. We did a series A raise, which was with um, the Martin Bauer group came in and invested. Uh, we just finished a series B raise, um, which is mostly your um, uh, Australian based, a little bit European based investment. And we basically self-funded ourselves through to this point. We'll be looking to go public in the next uh, little while and, and we'll be taking our wound treatment. Um, we're doing PK studies right now. I uh, hope we think with all the real world data we have, we'll be going to a, a stage three clinical trial on some of our wound for chronic care um, and then developing some other things. So, you know, really the only plug we're looking for is like everyone else, we're probably looking for investors at this point, at some point in the near future and maybe going public, but um, that's, we're probably anywhere from eight to 18 months away for, for that. So how does one get a hold of um, Well, PRM, dot com is uh it's plantsresearchmedicine.com is is our website and um you know our i'll call them our sister company is psychemedical.com um they we have a small stake in them um they are a fascinating technology that we're working with uh with them we're launching that distributorship in australia and we're hoping to take it elsewhere um that's a, a that company is so far ahead of anything else in the marketplace. Um, the ability that they've been able to prove of taking um, and getting a meter dose every time that you take an inhalation. So what it does is it's able to um, push the, the API deep into your lungs. And in a, I can't get into all too much detail, but there's a million patents wrapped around it. Um, but basically what ends up happening is that they're proving that you get hundred percent of the cannabinoids smoke-free into your lungs. And it's not a vape. It's a, it's like a aerialization of the, uh, of the cannabinoids. That product is going to be a game changer, I think in the marketplace, because, you know, you're able to, in essence, microdose, um, the cannabis and, um, not only are you using less API, which allows you to function every day, um, it'll allow you to drive, um, but it takes care of your pain. And um, that's for me, a bit of a game changer in the marketplace. And the only thing holding them back is probably them themselves being able to get it out fast, fast enough for them to hit the markets. You can also find Randy on LinkedIn, Randy Ewens, U-E-N-S. And like, I cannot thank you enough. Step, you got anything more to say? No, I'm, I'm really good. I can't wait to have uh, Randy back on the show. I'm really looking forward to getting to Nashville again and uh, and hanging out with uh, with you guys. So some point in the near future when the borders open up here. All right. I'm, we're going to wrap this up. We've managed to waste almost an hour of your time here. This is <laughs> Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media in Los Angeles, Randy Ewens, Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Hemp Farmer. And I want to thank Tennessee Homegrown for sponsoring our Full Contact Cannabis podcast. And as always, keep one eye on the market and the other eye on the weather. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, 
tnhomegrown.com for more background and information covered in our podcast. Full Contact Cannabis is created by Jarbo, the old hemp farmer. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com. Uppercut Media.